Don't just go through life, grow through it. Hi, and welcome to the Grow Through It podcast with Fee Dang. My name is Fee, and I am a human design life coach known as the Positivity Queen and author of The Great Unlearning, Awakening to Living an Aligned and Authentic Life. Join me as I discuss all things mindset, self-love, energy, and purpose, which are the four pillars of my Soul Revolution coaching methodology. This podcast won't just inspire and motivate. It will also provide practical tips and strategies you can implement in your daily life. Ready to grow? Let's grow. Hi, beautiful souls. On today's episode, we have Kim Tranflores, a modern calligraphy artist, mindfulness advocate, and founder of Kimligraphy, a service and educational platform that showcases and demonstrates the transformative power of mindful modern calligraphy. She is an unexpected artist, in her own words, as someone growing up who didn't have a creative bone in her body. Inspired by her grandfather, whose life was cut short, Kim embarked on a transformative journey to become the woman she is today, whose mission is to empower busy women, alleviating stress, nurturing the present moment, and igniting their creativity. Along the way, she's won multiple awards, such as recently this year, being a recipient of the Fairfield City Women's Day Award. Kim and I met at a networking event, and the rest is history, as they say. Kim is also a wife and a beautiful mother to one, Hendrix. He is so sweet, and my mum is absolutely obsessed with him. I personally attended one of Kim's workshops earlier this year with my mum, incorporating mindfulness with calligraphy and painting, which we loved and really brought us closer together. Kim also has her own podcast, Mindful Creatives, which I was on earlier this year, talking about how to overcome creativity blocks through life's unlearning. Enjoy today's episode. Hi, Kim. Welcome to the Grow Through It podcast. Hi, Fee. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited that you're here. And I would love for you to tell the audience who you are in your own words. Mm, Okay. I'm a mother, a wife, the eldest daughter, and one of my favorite things about myself I would love to tell people is that I'm a calligraphy artist mm. yeah, who runs a business, a creative business. The funny thing is I actually started my life thinking that I was totally not creative, but now. Really? Yeah. yeah. That's so interesting because I think most people think that about themselves. So mm. I would love for you to share your journey about where you started and how you ended up doing calligraphy. Mm. If I'm going to start my journey all the way back, I'll, I'll say in high school where I failed art. Oh, I was like, like, "Mm, yep, not for me. Art back then was like based on illustrations and painting and stuff. And that, that wasn't me. Like I I had to draw a picture perfect, like portrait in order to be Mm. considered an artist. And fast forward, didn't go to uni because I didn't really, one, I didn't make it. And two, I didn't really feel the drive. So I therefore didn't really try very hard. Went out there, spent a long time in the corporate industry. Mm -hmm. My journey into creative really started one night in bed. Okay. It was funny, right? I'm I'm on Facebook, I'm taking time out, I'm just fubbing what you know, scrolling through Facebook and I come across a a video of this calligraphy artist writing the word music. It captivated me. Like for that thirty seconds or whatever it is, she had me hooked. I was Mm. in this present moment and I remember snapping out of it and thinking, how do I keep carrying on this feeling of calm and serenity? So in my corporate job, I was a project manager within television 
broadcast, a junior project manager. I had just started my career in there. And I thought that's where I wanted to be, climbing the corporate ladder, getting really high up there, you know, making six figures, etc. And it didn't pan out that way because I, I didn't feel the joy from it. Mm. No matter how much money you could throw and make at it, there was something missing. So when I, I found that in that video, I took that moment, I was like, okay, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to buy the exact pen that she has. I'm going to buy some paper and I'm just going to write. I wrote and I was like, this is terrible. I, I clearly don't know how to do this stuff. So from there, I started investing more time into practicing and finding out about the art of calligraphy. And that led to one thing to another where I was actually really glad that I, I decided to, to, to start that because it helped me with just not my self-care, but also prioritizing myself. And what I didn't realize that was it was going to help me through my fertility journey too. Mm. Um, taking time out and finding something to, to relax me rather than people saying, just relax, just relax. Right. I found something that I could anchor to and there started a business because it became a passion where I wanted to help other women. Yeah. You know what? You don't, the first thing when it comes to mindfulness, you don't think calligraphy, right? Mm. You think about yoga, you think about meditation. I recently had the pleasure and joy of going to one of your workshops and I brought my mum along and Mm. I had never done calligraphy before, Mm -hmm. but in that moment I got it because time was going so fast. I was so focused and immersed in it. And I, you know, I think my brain's very like zany. I'm very right brained, but actually calligraphy helped me like be in this moment and it's very much a metaphor for life, right? Because you've got to yeah. do trial and error, you know. Yeah. You're like a, a three-profile line in human design, which is all about learning by experience. And I found it really interesting that you spoke about your fertility journey. So mm-hmm. how did these two worlds intersect there? It, so calligraphy for me, like, like you, I, you know, a lot of people, when I first started, I thought about mindfulness, it was meditation, yoga, um, hiking. But so stuff never really stuck. I feel like I'm. it's become a chore to do mm-hmm. rather than something that just flows naturally. So when I discovered calligraphy, I was like, it all clicked. It was that moment. I would take three, four hours out of the day and just sit there and basically ignore the world around me and just practice. So where fertility kind of intercepts with this is we were trying for a baby during that time before I actually even started calligraphy, but I was really stressed out because month after month, and I think mothers or women in general who've been trying for a baby or, you know, have gone through infertility issues would relate to this is all you think about is why can't I have a baby? Mm. And every month when your periods come, it's another devastating feeling inside. And the more you think about it, it it becomes something that consumes you. So for me, I was like, okay, I've got to snap out of this somehow. What can I do? I went back to calligraphy. I actually started with what we call brush pen calligraphy. So right. using a brush pen and that was fun. But then I figured out pointed pen calligraphy, which is with the nib and the ink. Yeah. And because I didn't get proper training when I first started, I was like, oh, this is not for me. So I threw it away. Didn't throw it away. I put it in a cu- cupboard. So when I started that that whole journey with my inf- my fertility, I pulled it back out. And I was like, okay, I'm going to do something about this. Mm. Let's give it a go. And that was what helped me through through this journey of every month when I was waiting to see if I would see those double lines on the pregnancy test, I would find calligraphy to help me through it, to mm. pass the time so that I was more focused in the present moment rather than thinking about the past of, you know, why – because we also went through two miscarriages too. Mm. So I was like, 
you know, thinking about the past of like, why, why did I lose my pregnancy or why I'm not, not getting pregnancy or trying to control the future of how can I, you know, if I have a baby this month, my baby would be like this year is old by this time or maybe mm-hmm. I'll be able to, and all that stuff. Calligraphy just helped me anchor to the moment rather yeah. than thinking about the past and the present. Thank you oh, sorry, so much. the past and the future. Yeah, yeah, thank you so much for sharing because I know that's such a vulnerability and I think mm. it's so important to talk about it because people don't talk about miscarriages. They don't talk yeah. about the fact that it is really hard to get pregnant. People mm. have this misconception like one of my cousins said to me like you spend most of your life trying not to get pregnant. Yeah. Then you decide you want it and you're like, okay, it's not happening and that's yeah. why more people are turning to IVF and things mm. like that. Like and school, school teaches you, you know, um, teen pregnancy everybody wants to talk about how horrible teen pregnancy or whatever it is and like why you shouldn't be intimate when you're young because you're just going to get pregnant you're going to have this baby school doesn't teach you that you only have what is it like there's only seven days in a month that you can get pregnant that honestly shocked me you know because I was on the pill for 10 years purely not to get pregnant Mm. and when it started messing with my body like I you know I lost my sex drive and things like that I was like it's time to change it Mm. and I was like nobody ever told me that I literally had this misconception that every day was a possibility yeah yeah. and it freaked me out yeah so and it's wrong right because you think oh I'm just gonna have sex yeah and that's it I'm I'm gonna be stuck with this baby and (laughs) And it's it's just something that is not educated enough. So when I had the opportunity to share about it, I'll tell everyone, you know, people would say to me, oh, I've been trying for like three weeks now and I haven't got pregnant. I'm like, maybe it's actually like, did you know that you can only get pregnant once, like one week out of a whole month? Mm. So learning about that. And same with you, when I went off the pill, I thought too, I was like, that's it, you know. I, I went off. I actually should have gotten off earlier because I was dealing with like headaches and stuff. And that's where I wasn't tapping into my body too because I just thought that's just something that happens. Like whatever. Yeah. You know, we'll just soldier on from it. But yeah, it, it really changes your mind when you go through things that affect your body too. Yeah. Do you have any tips to share? Because I feel like you've got such a different mindset and the way you approach it because I think it is a really difficult thing to go through. Mm. Um in terms of, of like fertility, like how to... The journey of yeah. trying to conceive. The journey, it, it's so different for everyone. You mm. know, like even people now when they ask me, they're like, what is it like to have a baby? Like, can you give me some advice on how do I, look, what should I expect? And I, I say this, no matter what journey you're on, like it could be the same as someone else's in, in a sense of the path that you're taking, but how you experience it is so different. We got to a point where we almost considered IVF, yeah. Um, but we were just fortunate that we we became pregnant, and when we did become pregnant, we we actually lost our our first um, pregnancy um, through the miscarriage. Gratitude was something mm. that was really important to me. I just took the time to to be thankful for what I had already, but also the other thing was, and I you talk about this too, is to feel the feelings, yeah, to know that it's okay you know, that you feel that way, that you're sad or you're jealous that someone just announced their pregnancy or you're upset because another month's gone by and you hadn't got pregnant. I think had I tried to sweep that all under the rug and let it like, you know, pretend that it didn't happen, it would have affected me even more. Mm. So, and for those who are seeing family members or friends who are going through that one of the I found for me and this might be different for them is it's a very personal um journey that I find too is if you want to reach out to someone if someone's going through it just listen yeah you know 
I don't need the, oh, my cousin's brother, sister's cousin, niece's <laughs> yes. nephew um, went to Thailand and like, you know, they went on the top of a hill and like at three o'clock in the afternoon, that's how they got pregnant. Yeah. I was like, I don't really care about your cousin's niece's nephew, whatever it is. It's me. It's just it's, to just listen to that person and be there for them, whatever it is. Like, you know, they might tell you the same story 500 times, but you just, they, they're just needing to get it off their chest. And if they wanted advice, they would ask. Yeah, it's the art of holding space and truly just letting somebody and validating their experience because I can imagine that it would be mm. a roller coaster of emotions. And we spoke about on your podcast about the cultural conditioning as Asian women. It's really mm. hard to talk about our feelings as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it's really hard to talk to your parents mm. and those of an older generation. Like, you know, they're going through trauma themselves. So they had gone through traumas themselves too, especially if they were like refugees coming from, yes. you know, escaping the war and stuff. They, the understanding for them that they don't know how to handle the situations yeah. and that they're learning too. Mm. Whereas when you're talking to your peers, it's a little bit different because they tend to have a little bit more of the sense of understanding for you. Yeah. Like everyone kind of deals with, situations like this so differently like I remember we, we we didn't tell anyone that we were having infertility issues like extended family I knew my close families knew but extended family and we would go to family events and they'll be like when are you having a baby when are you having a baby you know why aren't you having a baby yet mm. so, to the point where I just one day I was like actually I've we've been trying for a long time now and we've just gone through two miscarriages the the look on their face yeah you know they were like oh um we're sorry. Like, and they stopped asking after that because they didn't know how to deal with it. Yeah. But, which was a relief to me because I was like, great, stop asking me these questions too. Yeah, it's a societal yeah. thing. I really learned like it's not something, you know, people get married, you're like, when are you going to have a baby? And mm. you never know what's going on behind yeah. the scenes. And I was very guilty of that in the past too. Like when you know, friends who had just got married, when are you having a baby? Yeah. And then I went through and I was like, I understand yeah. why you don't ask someone that sometimes. Mm. because you just don't know what they're going through. Yeah. I mean, I coach a lot of women who are mothers and I think one of the things that I really witness is the guilt about pursuing a career or how does this fit in with me running a business and an empire that I want to create. What's your journey been like in terms of the feelings of becoming a mother, running a successful business and how do you balance that? When so when I became pregnant, I was like, "That's it! I'm taking nine months off, right? Mm. The whole year maternity. I'm gonna be around my baby. No one is going to help me. I'm going to do it all myself." I had this illusion inside of what was expected of me because of what I had learnt from society. Yeah, I went back to work after went back to corp, my corporate job after three months. What? <laughs> I was bored. Right? Yeah. I had of this thought inside. I was like, "This is what a mother's supposed to be. You should be like loving." Like we, so we had dealt with the baby blues and postnatal depression and all yeah. that in the beginning too. That was a big hit. Motherhood changed me a lot. And people ask me this, like you just had, how do you do it all? I, I don't. I don't do it all. I really prioritise what's important. And I don't believe in balance. Yeah. In a sense of life and career and stuff. Every week it's very different. Some weeks family plays really heavily on my plate like you know I hadn't maybe I hadn't spent a lot of time with Hendrix and I need to prioritize him this week or next week I've got a lot of clients that I need to to deal with a lot of workshops and stuff it's 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 prioritizing week by week what Mm -hmm. it is and 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 understanding that what society expects of you and what other people expects of you is not what will be your life will be like you have to analyze what your life is and live for you 
yeah. in that way. So I went back to work after three months because I was bored. I was like, yes. I can't do this every time. But I was I was adamant on breastfeeding and stuff. So instead I pumped at work to yeah. be able to feed. And work was actually really, really um, well. They created a whole wellness room for, oh, which that's is amazing. for women to go pump and stuff. So I made that very clear to them that I need 20 minutes, two times a day in order to do this. Um, you know, set boundaries and I need to work from home. I would have not been that person before of asking, like standing up and saying, I need this. Like, I'll just be like, okay, if you can't give it to me, whatever. But motherhood changed me in understanding that I had to ask for help. Yeah. And I had to almost demand it sometimes if okay. I really needed it. You know that saying, it takes a village to raise a child? Yes. It is so true. Yeah, I've heard. <laughs> I, I commend women who do it on their own or who have a very small village or no village at all because it's a lot of work. Like, when I had postnatal depression, I had my husband. He was there with me, helping me through. I mean, I was trying to breastfeed it and I, I couldn't. And I didn't know how to. He would go out to the shops, you know, to buy what nappies or whatever it is. And he's like, oh, well, I found these nipple shields. And I thought, I don't know, maybe they would help. And I'm like, my husband just went out and bought nipple shields for me. And I didn't even know these things existed. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, mum would come over with dinner. She'd be there to hold the baby so I could go have a shower. Because mm. there's this phantom thing that happens when you have a baby and you're in the shower, you hear your baby crying. Right. And then you pop out and you're like, hold on, baby's asleep. Like, it, it's just, you always hear it. So having someone there to kind of be like, they're watching my baby really helped me. Just really relying on this 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 village and being open to accepting help. Like, no one's judging you because you've asked for help. They really want to lend a helping hand. Mm. So if you've got that opportunity, take it. And now, like, you can see, like, today I don't have Hendrix with me. Yes. I'm like, here you go, mum, have fun. Yeah. And that bond that you see between grandparents and children, like, they really love that. Yeah, that's super sweet. And I really love that you talked about identity because I feel like everybody in life goes through different identities, but really mourning who you were before a mother and now. Mm. And I think mothers can be really typecast a certain way. And what's been your experience of being perhaps boxed into this label of a mum that doesn't necessarily encapsulate who you are? Do you know, the person who judged me the most um, in terms of who a mother should be and what a mother should be was myself. Mm, That's deep. That's real deep. Yeah, I remember like one night, like Hendrix was crying. We had just come home like maybe a couple of weeks or something from the hospital and he's crying and I'm holding and I'm rocking him and I'm, I'm looking at him and I'm like, what did I get myself into? Like I had such a great life before. And Mark's like in the bed snoring away sleeping <laughs> and I'm like, oh, aren't you lucky? And like this baby's just looking at me and I'm like, I had freedom before. But in my head, I had expected myself to be a certain way as a mother. I was going to have the perfect child, you know, who would eat everything that they were fed, who would sleep through the night, whatever that meant. Like, yeah. I didn't even know what, what does that, that mean. Meant, right? <laughs> I, I had this perception of what being a mother was like and I was so hard on myself. Mm. If I had a dollar or even 10 cents for every time I Googled something about my child or myself, I'd be so rich right now. Mm. Like to the point where Mark had to be like, you need to stop Googling. Yeah. Google is not going to help you because you, if you're looking for a certain answer, you're going to find it on both sides of the fence. If you're looking for one thing, you will find that answer because, you know, it's there. Yeah. Everyone has a different thing. What do you want as a mother? Mm. And I had to really ask myself and be like, you know what? I, I want to be someone who can work. Yeah. Who, who doesn't have to have this perfect child who I don't, 
I, I see mothers sometimes who have like three or four children, like five, six children, and I'm like, wow, very maternal. I came to the acceptance that I'm not this super maternal person. Mm-hmm. I love my son. I really do. But I needed space. Yeah, and you went through a whole journey to have him as yeah. well. Yeah, and that journey also led to me being like, oh, but now I have him, so I have to. I yeah. have to appreciate this, right? I have to live this life where I'm this perfect mother for this child because I tried so long. Even sometimes where I would say, oh, I wish he wouldn't cry so much. And someone would say, well, aren't you lucky that someone, you have a baby that is crying because that's mm. what you wanted to be for, wasn't it? And I was like, yeah, but I'm allowed to still feel. Absolutely. Like it's not, not everything that I wanted. No, and it doesn't take away from your experience. No. It, it, it was me. I, I judged myself so much. And you all, like, I don't think anyone judged me as much as I did. Like, I would talk to my mum and it'd be like, you know, I, I didn't do this right. She was like, okay, and mm-hmm. You think I did everything right? You guys turned out okay. Yeah. I mean, I've got some issues, mum, but, <laughs> you know, like, overall, like, there was no way to be perfect as a mother. And so when mothers come to me now and they're like, what do I expect? How should I be? Like, what can I do to help? I say... You know that saying when people say go with the flow? Yeah. And then they're like, yeah. And I'm like, it's not your flow. It's your baby's flow. Mm. Living the life of the child that you had, not who you had envisioned. Yeah. I mean, I think it's so layered because I was going to say you mentioned your mum as well. And how did that, your relationship with your mum impact you as who you saw yourself to be as a mother? Because Mm. I find in coaching, we either replicate our parents to a T, whether consciously or unconsciously, or we are the complete opposite. Mm. I I think I'm in between. My mother is super maternal. Like she wants me to have more kids. She had, she had like, um, she had my sister and I, and she we co-slept and everything. So there are elements of like her that I would take on, but elements that I was like, I can't do it. My mum is stay at home mother. She's yeah. happy to do that. Mm-hmm. She's very in the kitchen. Like this is my kitchen. Get out of my kitchen. I'm like, I don't want to be in the kitchen. And you know, I would I would leave Hendrix with her for like at six months old, so I could go out to. I think we went to a Bon Jovi concert. Yeah. Night, right. And I was like, Can I leave Hendrix with you? She's like, Yeah. And I was like, He wakes up in the middle of the night. She's like, That's very normal. Babies do that. And she's like, I'm like, what did you do? She goes, I just cuddled him and gave him a bottle and he went back to sleep. The one big thing I took from my mother was the co-sleeping. I always wanted to co-sleep with my son because I just love that connection. But other things of like staying at home and being a stay-at-home mum, it didn't reflect with me. Yeah. And it didn't like – so I learned to, to take elements of what I appreciated about her and what I enjoyed. And with things that I didn't like resonate with, I would – do things my own way but my relationship with my mum and even my mother-in-law yeah changed so much right it this whole new appreciation for them of mm-hmm. what they went through because when they had us was a very different time frame and a very different society to what we had now they were expected to, to stay at home and be a mother and look after and be kind of the perfect mother. Yeah. You know, and now we have that freedom to say, no, fuck that. Or F yeah. That. You know, like I don't have to do that if I don't want to. I'm going to do it my way. My, I, I love my mum even more mm-hmm. than I had ever loved her. The moment my son was born, she would like the care that she took, not just for me, but my son and even my mother-in-law changed our relationship. I, I would say changed that dynamic so much. Wow. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's like, I mean, it's like one of the biggest things and a huge change in your life. And mm. I think, how do you find like navigating the cultural train? You know, about, you know, there's Vietnamese, there's Filipino from Mark, you know, we're Australian as well. Mm. How do you kind of um, think about that when you're raising Hendrix, your son? I was very, so when I was growing up, I remember my parents would say to me, we don't do that, we're Asian. Like, you know, Mm. that's what white people do or that's what the Australians do. And I have to keep reminding them we are in Australia, you know. Um, I don't think it was – even when Mark and I got married, we, we had a very big discussion before we even started dating of setting our values. I love that. I say yeah. – I coach couples. I'm like, that is super important. It's like mm. the first step because you can be really different. He might like rock climbing. Mm. You might like shopping. Yeah. doesn't matter. But if you don't have the same values, we are going to have some problems. Yeah. <laughs> it was actually Mark, right, because we had dated once and we broke up. Cause <laughs> but then we got back together and he was like, okay, these are my values. And I remember thinking – like this is such a massive turn off. Like, <laughs> like why are we talking about this stuff? But it set a standard for our relationship. I love that. So one of his thing was, I've got two sisters. If you don't get along with them, and I will always remember this, I've got two sisters. You don't have to love them. You don't have to even be their best friend. But if you don't get along with them, I don't think it's going to work out for us. And I was like, I have a sister. I understand that. Like, I don't need you to sit there and have a conversation. I just need you to know that she's my sister and that, you know, if she needed help, you'd probably help her the same way as I would help your sister. Mm. Same with our our family, like, you know. And the one topic that came up was religion. So I grew up Catholic and I grew up in a Buddhist household. And I said to him very clearly, I said, I'm not converting. Yeah. I don't expect you to, to either, but I'm not converting and if that's a, a game, like if that doesn't work for you, then it's not going to work for us. Yeah. And setting those boundaries really, yeah, helped our relationship. So when Hendrix came along, my parents like, were like whatever, you do whatever. It's your child. Like you know, as long as you bring him over and I can cuddle him, oh, yeah. and stuff, and we can do certain Buddhist, like because they never expected Mark to to convert to. So, you know, they were like, can we just do certain Buddhist rituals with Hendrix? And I said, yeah, of course. And we were open to doing it with the Catholic, like getting him baptised and stuff. That unfortunately didn't work out because the church had different ideas about that. Yeah. And that was fine because they said, look, leave it up to him. Let him decide when he grows up if he wants to be baptised. It's never too late. Yeah. We were like, okay. So we've just been open to raising him in both traditions and letting him choose. Like we're pretty agnostic in the way we, we think. I, I very much... But spiritually, I'm with the universe. Yeah. Very open. Me and you, sister. <laughs> yeah. You know, like Catholic, um, Buddhist, Muslim, whatever it is that you choose to be is your own journey. For me, I'm just like, I I respect you your and what your beliefs are. And for me, I'm open to just accepting the universe and that all that. Yeah, because we spoke about it earlier. We're just saying it all distills. It's love. Mm. You know, whether, whatever you want to label it, like to me, essentially, mm. it, it's love. Yeah. So with Hendrix, no one way or another about a thing it's like we take him to church and we take him to temple i love that yeah. so he can just and he's very curious and he asks like i think once he asks us he's like can you tell me what death is and who god is and wow <laughs> we went to uh, we went to church once and he like the jesus on the yes he's like who's that and i was like that's your dad yeah <laughs> your dad explained it to you but yeah like we we live consciously because we realize that he is not us yes although he came from us he's not us and we're very big on conscious parenting and yeah so conscious parenting is very much about unlearning about yourself too and learning about yourself too in order to not put that onto your child 
I mean, you know I'm all about the unlearning, which we're going to talk about when I kind of, we wrap up this podcast. But before we do, I I mentioned to you that your human design purpose was consciousness. And Mm -hmm. as we're speaking, um, Kim's husband, Mark, is listening and he's in the room. And I have to say, like, Mark really represents like the embodiment of like the divine masculine. I think he's quite different to a lot of men. He's in touch with his feelings. Mm -hmm. He values personal growth. He's, you know, he's your biggest supporter. And so what is it like to date someone? Because for example, that values activity that you did like you were kind of called out in that moment because you weren't ready and conscious yet but he was kind of like guiding you there so Mm. how's that been in terms of like being in a relationship with also a very conscious man and yourself being conscious I am conscious because he's conscious Okay, so it's the other way around. Yeah, it was the other way around, right? Mm-hmm. I was very much stuck in this victim mindset. Why is life happening to me? Mm. And he was all about why is happen- what's happening for me. Mm. And I thought it was crazy. <laughs> like when I first started dating and talked to him about it, he was like, yeah, and like, you know, the law of manifestation, the law of attraction. And, and I'm like, you are bonkers, mate. Like, <laughs> do you think the earth is flat too? Yeah. But really, he... He just lived his life, you know, and I was there for the ride in, in terms of he never forced me to be a conscious parent. He just set an example of, of him and I, I decided, I chose to be like, you know what, you've got something going on here. I, 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 I think I want to try it out. It was mm. like his theory of leaving the cow in the pack. Is it the cow or the sheep or something in the pack? There's this theory about a cow. He's nodding. He's like, yeah. Mm-mm. yeah. I, I forgot <laughs> what it is, right? But if you Google, like, there's a theory about just leaving a cow in a paddock and doing your thing. And, like, you know, if the cow wants to, to, to follow you, it will. If not, it's just going to do its own thing. So he was just like, I'm going to do my thing. I'm going to respect that you're not on that part of the journey yet. And we'll see. And we just happen to really grow together. I love this so much because I literally tell all my clients, whether it's your partner, your friends, your family, Mm. if you work on your own consciousness and that's all you can do, your energy will rise and people will either match you or they're going to fall away. And I think it will also, for the ladies listening, give them hope that there are men out there like that. You may not have just met them yet, but they definitely exist because a lot of the clients that I have, it's the opposite, Mm. right? Like conscious women, but not so conscious men. Um, So yeah, thank you so much for sharing. So it's been amazing having you on the podcast. I ask every guest three questions before they kind of leave the podcast. So my first question to you is, well, you know, I have a book called The Great Unlearning. Mm. What has been your greatest unlearning in life, Kim? Uh, My greatest unlearning, and, and you share this in the book too, we've chatted about this, is being busy is not a badge of honor yeah it is it it is not it it, for me i learned that being busy for me was hiding from something that Mm -hmm. i wasn't ready to to face and when i faced it it really changed my life Mm -hmm. yeah that's deep and the second question which is a completely different riff and tangent what was the last thing you googled last thing i googled um i don't think i can share that (laughs) (laughs) because my sister sent me a meme today and I was like, I want to find out more details about it. But the last serious thing I Googled was I wanted to know how to write a formula in Excel because I was oh, yeah. to do something. I was like, how's that formula written? So also, I love the honesty, yeah. respect for that. And I love it. Everybody knows, you know, I, something that I used to do on dates is I get them to control, like paste whatever the last thing. Oh, people would freak out, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, so respect for that. <laughs> And the final question is, what is like the best quote or a piece of insight or advice that you've ever been given that has changed your life? Mm. The 
the best quote, and we, we actually touched on this, so the best in, piece of insight was you can't force anyone to do anything. You just have to live your life and set the example. And if they want to, they will to, to come along. Yeah. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, no, Kim. And before you go, how can people connect with you? I know you obviously have a calligraphy course. I know you have a community. Please share how people can connect yeah. with you. So I have the website, but the, the main so my website is kimligraphy.au but the main way to connect with me and where I'm most active to is on my Instagram so at kimligraphy thank you so much thank you for having me beautiful soul I hope you enjoyed today's episode and just so you know that if you're interested in working with me I do offer one-to-one coaching and human design readings more information available on my website feedang.com or get in touch via my Instagram at thefeedang I would absolutely love to work with you. Until next time.